and welcome to As It Comes, life from a musician's point of view. I'm Davina, I'm a freelance cellist based in London, and this episode is packed with lots of exciting things to learn about, so I hope that when you finish listening, you'll be inspired to go forth and explore. There's new music to listen to, stories about composers you might not know about, new things to read, seeing as we're still in lockdown here in the UK, we might as well use the time to expand our horizons, right? So I'm jumping right in today. My guest this episode is music researcher Leah Broad. She's a junior research fellow at Christchurch University of Oxford, and we had a lively conversation recently on Zoom while her gorgeous golden retriever Otto lay nearby. Leah's someone I was aware of, as our names have been side by side on the writing and narrating credits for some of the BBC Time Traveller podcast episodes, but we'd never actually met. So it was great to get in touch and hear about some of the fascinating research she's doing at the moment. Though, as you'll hear, that's a tricky thing to do during a pandemic. Here's my chat with Leah Broad. Leah Broad, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. So just to introduce you for listeners who might not know who you are, you're a music researcher and you're a junior research fellow at Christchurch, University of Oxford. As a music researcher, what's it been like working through the pandemic for you? Well, a surprising amount has stayed the same and a a huge amount has changed. I mean, you know, my day-to-day involves going into libraries, going into archives, going and interviewing people a lot. A lot of the work that I'm doing at the minute is a lot like detective work because I'm studying women composers in the 20th century and a lot of their material wasn't published. So I spend a lot of my time going into people's homes going, hey, let's have a cup of tea and talk about your gran. Can I read all her diaries from when she was a teenager, please? And try not to be too intrusive about that. Oh, I can see how that's probably not very kosher right now. <laughs> right. So a lot of my research has just had to stop. Like, I cannot go into people's homes. I can't go into a lot of the libraries. I need to close all my research trips that I've planned abroad to lovely places. Can't oh. happen. But I can keep writing and, you know, I'm teaching online, which... I think is probably more stressful for my students than it is for me and my heart goes out to students who are having to learn online I really do yeah yeah so are these musicology students at Oxford yeah yeah yeah. Uh, how how do you find teaching online because I guess for you, you you can deliver but it can be difficult receiving sometimes yeah the way that we teach at Oxford I'm it's we're really lucky in that actually the tutorial system translates quite well online because I teach in groups of two or three sometimes a little bit more but at the minute you know we can actually have a conversation and because I teach music history and music analysis I don't have all the lag issues with people trying to teach performance so actually it's it's surprising right (laughs) I know you this is probably a a problem you are very familiar with (laughs) We just don't have that. So actually yeah. the conversations part of it is okay. What's more, I think, difficult is, you know, the fact that you've been completely taken out of your university context, it's quite disorientating and resources are really hard to come by. Not everybody can work well from home either. And copyright is copyright does. And, you know, it, it's hard to get scores. And so you had to change a lot of what I was planning to teach and it's quite difficult working remotely I think but 
we're making it work. The good thing about that is that, as you mentioned the word conversation, you can have this dialogue with your students. And so they're gaining valuable skills and actually being able to communicate with you, you know, having to really engage with the learning material. Maybe it's different in, in person. For me personally, I would love to play a scale with a student again. <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, if I was teaching performance, how are you How are you managing teaching performance online? It just seems to me like, oh, God, how would I do this? <laughs> I mean, I'm getting used to it. I mean, it pains me to say this, but it's almost been a year of doing it. Oh, don't I know. The first month or so, you know, like everything, everything going on Zoom and on Microsoft Teams and stuff like that, you just, you grit your teeth and you just think, oh, my gosh, I'm screaming internally. But I think what I've found, as I mentioned before, is like my students, they're starting to thrive a bit more in their communication skills. You know, if they've got a question, they can't read the body language of the teacher or the other students around them. So they really have to, you know, showcase their vulnerabilities in that sense. But yeah, it's like, as you say, it's difficult for everyone because some people don't have a good working at home environment. I very much appreciate you. You know, you probably spend so much time sitting in front of a screen. And thanks again for well, sitting down likewise. and thank you for asking me to come on what else have you been doing during the pandemic aside from sitting in front of a screen yeah I mean well apart from work I mean is there anything apart from work at the minute no that, that's that's not true I walk my dog an awful lot we have been getting in a lot of dog walk times which has been so lovely we got to spend a lot of time together that's great I watched a lot of Bridgerton not gonna lie. oh my gosh you know what I'm, I haven't joined this train yet but I've heard so much about it it's weirdly addictive and the music is really good so it's it's research oh yeah yeah absolutely uh, <laughs> <laughs> you could probably claim that off your taxes for next year <laughs> <So>. <laughs> no, mm. <laughs> Netflix subscription it is research right if I wrote a journal article on music in Bridgerton there we go that can be my next project but I don't think somehow that that one is it's not high on my agenda of things to write at the minute <laughs> Well, at least you've got something, you know, backed up for when you need inspiration. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Other than that, I have successfully killed a sourdough starter. That was great. Oh, um, no. Cannot recommend. It smells so bad. So what do you do with a sourdough starter when it's dead? You leave it in a mason jar and hope your partner cleans it out and then both of you just leave it there. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, but I'm glad to hear that it's not all fun and games when making sourdough. Because I don't know about you, because like I see a lot of sourdoughs on Instagram and on social media. You only see the good sourdoughs, right? Oh, I can I can show you a bad sourdough, <laughs> but let's not. Cause, um, no, that's not. That's not okay. Sourdough starter of shame in the kitchen that we need to we need to sort out. Okay, it's probably a good thing we can't smell over a podcast either. Oh, oh don't please don't. <laughs> It's so nice to hear that you've been um, walking your dog and getting a bit of fresh air because obviously we all need to be away from the screen and we all need to remind ourselves of the things that aren't just work these days. But as I mentioned before, you know, you're working as a music researcher and author of a to-be book, which is super exciting. But tell me, first of all, what led you down this journey of music research? How did you get started in this line of work? A lot of serendipity, I think. A lot of choices, but also a lot of just, you know, things that sort of went that way at the time. Because I started out playing the piano and up until I was sort of 19, 20, I was set on being a performer. That was all I really wanted to do. That was what I really enjoyed. I sort of got into the piano. I don't 
really know why I just loved the sound of the piano and bullied my parents into getting me lessons and you know they, they were like okay fine and I think that's probably why I ended up really enjoying music because my parents never really pushed me like they encouraged me and were like great if you want to practice that's fine <laughs> fantastic go ahead but yeah they were just encouraging I think rather than like you know a lot of people who go into classical music have sometimes had a family environment where it's quite uh, competitive sometimes or there's that kind of drive which I didn't have so I just really love playing the piano yeah you hear a lot of the other side don't you yeah the, the other kind of yeah. sides of that story of like people who are, they're in it because as you say someone just pushed them and then it kind of kills the love of it somewhat exactly yeah. whereas I was like just just didn't have that so I, I had a fantastic teacher then I took a gap year and I was performing and I felt like mm, maybe this isn't actually for me <laughs> and only because I don't know I found like there were so many hours of practice 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 practice, practice, practice. and it I loved that but also I got so nervous on the stage and I was like is this what's going to make me happiest and I was yeah. sort of umming and ahhing about it and I applied for conservatoires etc etc and because I'd got results in my IB that meant I could I applied to Oxford and I was like okay well let's see what happens this this might you know I'll see, see what happens and I did the interviews and something clicked and I was like oh my god this is so exciting this is really really interesting that's that's what I'm missing if I get if I somehow managed to get a place I think I'm gonna go here and got a place and everyone was like what Leah you've been like saying you're gonna go to the conservatoires this is like the thing that you want to do for the last how many years and I was like no 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 I'm gonna go to Oxford because this seems great I, I mean I absolutely loved doing my undergraduate it was incredible and just opened up a completely new way of thinking about music for me which I absolutely fell in love with and just sort of stayed doing that really. <laughs> I then did my master's and then I did my PhD I'm still very early in my academic career right mm -hmm. so you know I'm I'm a junior research fellow that means it's not a permanent job it's the sort of the the job that you do after your PhD so I don't really know where it's gonna go next uh <laughs> I mean we'll, we'll see what happens I know I'm writing a book and then I'll see what happens next. But it sounds like that's sort of the mantra you've taken your whole life. It's like, I don't know where this will lead me, but I'll go down this path anyway. And then great things happen that way. Even how you started the piano and you, you weren't necessarily pushed and not really knowing what's in the abyss. Sometimes that is kind of the best way to go because it just leads you to magnificent things. What sort of things did you love about your undergrad at Oxford? Meeting other people who was crazy about music as I was. <laughs> Because, I mean, I, I, I think, like, to really get into classical music, I don't know, how, how did you get into playing the instrument that you did and what kept you going with it? <laughs> so I've, I've mentioned this um, before, but, I mean, for me, I, I find it really interesting that you said the word serendipity before, but I signed mm. up to do cello lessons when I was about eight years old because I was in the line to sign up for Saturday morning music lessons I was, and I was behind my best friend at the time and I asked her, what are you signing up for? She said, cello. And so I just did the same so we could hang out on Saturday mornings. She gave up after a year and I just kept going for the rest of my life. So basically the same sort of thing. I just kept doing something. I liked it and then found myself 
getting into it, I think. Mm. In terms of getting into classical music, I think it was probably because I found a really, like you, I think I found a really nice group of people that shared the same interest. So a lot of my music making has been quite socially driven for me yeah. anyway. I don't know if it's if it's like that for you. Absolutely. And this was one of the things that I found hardest about playing the piano, which is that unless you're embedded in a chamber group, and this is why, you know, I still love doing accompaniment and I love playing chamber music, but it's real lonely. And I'm a bit of a chatterbox and I like people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so true. Solo piano repertoire. It's very, very lonely by yourself. And you walk up on stage and you've got to do your thing. And and, I mean, I would get nervous if I had to do that. I don't even play the piano. (laughs) Exactly. And so, you know, I, I love playing chamber stuff but solo it just it didn't seem to fit my personality when the realities of doing that job sort of became more apparent to me because it was sort of like oh okay this would be great and I was like actually I'm gonna be I'm gonna be on my own most of my life in hotel rooms I don't think that that suits me as a person and I'm not sure that's gonna make me as happy as I as I thought it would so I'll try some other things and see what happens (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So did you did you find the uh, the social fulfillment that you were craving when you went down the road of academia? Yeah, weirdly, because yeah. <laughs> I spent a lot of my time sitting writing essays in a library, but I was with my friends and we would all sit and write essays in the library and we'd break for coffee at two and be like, I don't know what I'm doing. This is dreadful. What's going on? This is really hard. What is this question? I don't know. But it did give me more of that. And I've definitely kept tailoring my research to make it more socially engaged I do a lot more work with other people and meeting other people now than I did during my PhD and I think that I'm happier with that now so yeah I enjoyed that and just like discovering how much music I didn't know that was incredible when I came to university and I was like wow I you know I thought I knew a bit about music having played piano this much I just really didn't. There's so much out there that I had no idea existed. And that was just unbelievable. Really great. That's really cool. And now you're in a position where you can uncover even more stuff, you know, that's out there. That is one of the biggest thrills of this job is being like, oh my God, I found something nobody knew existed. Hooray. I saw your blog post actually when you said you were were announcing you're writing a book and I loved the title. I'm writing a book. Uh... (laughs) Ah. I tried. I was there with trying to be like, okay, what's a really sensible, sensible title? And I was like, I'm just too excited about this. Oh, I reckon, you know, show your excitement. We need, we need that more. Speaking of your book and uncovering composers that haven't perhaps enjoyed the limelight as much as other composers that are very well known. So you've chosen to write your book about four female composers, Ethel Smythe, Rebecca Clark, Dorothy Howell and Doreen Carwithin. So tell me about the process of writing a book. What inspired you to lead you to write about these four composers? I discussed a lot of book ideas with my agent before we agreed on this one. But this one, I think, partly, this was a, it's a combination of love and anger, this book, which is that these women are incredible. They are so fascinating and their music is astonishing. I remember the first time I heard a piece of music by all of these composers and it made me completely stop what I was doing at the time and go, who the hell wrote that? This is so good. I have to stop and listen to it. I sit and read a lot of history books for my job and very few of these (laughs) books will mention any of these women, if at all. 
most has been written about Ethel Smythe, then Rebecca Clark, a little bit about Doreen Carwithan, and very little at all about Dorothy Howe. And when you compare to the volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes of books about Beethoven, you know, Mozart, Grieg, you can take your pick, it, it, it makes me really annoyed. Yeah, I see. I know exactly what you mean. Just that feeling of love, but also anger as well, because it's like, why haven't I heard of this before? This is fantastic stuff. That sort of passion can kind of drive you forward in your research. Yeah, definitely. And this is, you know, I, I wrote my PhD on Nordic theatre music and I love the music and I love the composers and it, it, it fascinated me and kept me going for uh, the years to my PhD. But this project feels a bit more personal in some ways, particularly because... I don't know, this is an interesting one where I never got asked as a researcher when I was studying Sibelius, why do you study Sibelius? Because it's sort of self-evident. He's a genius. Of course you study Sibelius. But when I study music by women, people are like, oh, is it because you're a woman? And I'm like, <laughs> mm. I mean, maybe, maybe a large part of it is that, yes. But I'm, I'm here because I think these women wrote fantastic pieces of music. They deserve to be in our history books. And then their lives have a really fascinating story to tell as well. But yeah, I find that an interesting dynamic working on material that's less obviously well known. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? When people are like, oh, you're doing this because you're a woman. And it's like, but we need to get to that point where a woman's compositions are just considered on par. One day, one day. <laughs> one, one, one book at a time. There we go. Exactly. <laughs> But that's that's really fascinating. I mean, because you mentioned before the sort of order of fame of the composers with sort of Ethel Smythe at the top, and and one of my favorite anecdotes about her is when she was in prison. You probably know what I'm about mm-hmm. to say, but mm-hmm. she was in in prison and she conducted a performance of March of the Woman from her cell using a toothbrush as a baton. What other fascinating stories have you found out about these composers? I mean, that, that one about Ethel Smythe is, is hilarious and it's it's brilliant. But, you know, what's something cool that you can tell us about some of the others? Oh, I mean, well, so Ethel Smythe is anecdote central. And she's one of the reasons why, why she's in the book. She is, you can't, I think, look at women in British music history without taking Ethel Smythe into account. She is the figure. And part of the reason she's the figure is obviously she's extremely talented, but the determination it took to get famous as a woman in her lifetime is extraordinary. And partly she needed to stand out from the crowd to make people remember her, to make people take her seriously. Sometimes it backfired a bit. She became so well known for the anecdotes that people didn't take her seriously. They were like, oh, that eccentric English lady, that's nice. I mean, she was extremely good friends with Emmeline Pankhurst and so there are a lot of interesting suffragette stories uh, as to how she ended up in prison in the first place conducting with a toothbrush is because she went on a window smashing campaign with Emmeline Pankhurst. She like goes to Egypt to write an opera and decides that as a feminist act she thinks that there aren't any women's loos in Cairo train station and she's like this is a way of suppressing women I'm just gonna like do my business on the platform then realized that she just read the sign wrong. There were some perfectly <laughs> well-equipped women's toilets. Um, Who but documented so she... that? <laughs> <laughs> well, so she did. She wrote home to Emmeline Pankhurst because the availability of women's toilets at the time was a real 
feminist issue yeah um because if you can't go to the loo you can't spend much time away from your home and so it mattered where there were and were not women's conveniences so she thought she was she's being a really strident militant feminist by choosing where she was going to go to the loo the book is going to be it's almost like what anecdotes don't I put in about Ethel Smythe but she's unusual and the reason partly why I'm not just writing a biography about her is because she's not representative of women at the time at all for example Dorothy Howell who uh, is sort of later than Ethel Smythe she's much more quiet much more retiring but she's got a cracking sense of humor and in all her letters home to her parents when she's studying at the royal academy she describes these gorgeous dresses that she's bought they're a bit more expensive than they should have been sorry about that mom and dad kind of thing but could you send me a bit more money because it's beautiful pink silk and oh you'd absolutely love it and she does that but i think with her one of the anecdotes i absolutely love the most about her is when she makes her concerto debut and so she's going out, she's a pianist, she's going to play Rachmaninoff too, and she's so nervous that she's shaking, and then her hands are so cold that she can't move them, so she goes and dunks them in hot water, and then she's sweating, and it's all terrible, <laughs> and so then she goes on stage, and she's still shaking, and I was like, oh, I have been there, my friend. <laughs> that is that horrible feeling. <laughs> I love it. It's highlighting the human stories behind these people, isn't it? It's not just like, yeah. oh, this composer who lived from this date until this date and that these are the works in their canon, etc. But that's what I, I love also is, is hearing about these relatable human stories that drove these people to write incredible pieces of music. You know what I'd love to see is like a recreation if these four composers were say on social media in modern Mm. times you know can you imagine if like Ethel Smythe was live tweeting her journey in the train station she would be absolute queen of Twitter if if Ethel Smythe was alive today she would be all over the place on social media and you know what she'd be amazing to follow she'd be one of these people I'm like wow I can't decide if I love or hate you you're real problematic aren't you but that's (laughs) quite funny follow for the entertainment value for sure absolutely absolutely Rebecca Clark and Dorothy Howell are the ones you want to go shopping with they're fashionistas incredible and I get the feeling that they were just really nice people so they're the ones you'd probably see on their Instagram stories like where they were shopping what they were yeah Rebecca Clark would be like "Mm, this is the dress I've just made no big deal but it's a concert dress made out of you know I just chucked it together kind of thing and Dorothy Howell would be like here I am in this beautiful scenery wearing a surprisingly fashionable dress. Just just going to say. <laughs> the composer influences of the past. Can you imagine? But then Doreen Carwithan, you wouldn't be able to find her anywhere. You'd be like, who is this woman? Of that list, I hadn't actually heard of her. But I looked her up and she actually went by another name. Is that right? She went by Mary Elwin? Yeah. So she is, I think, the most difficult person to write about in the book because you don't know anything about her (laughs) well because she's so part of the reason why I think she's so difficult to write about is because she goes to the Royal Academy to study and she falls in love with her composition tutor who was also a composer called William Alwyn they start an affair he was married to another woman uh he had kids she, she adored this guy like completely besotted with him but they had an affair which they kept secret from even Colwithan's family for like 20 years. And they did eventually get married, but there was this period of time where 
she had her public life and the majority of her life was a private life that she didn't even talk about with her closest friends or family. And that, I think, has, has an impact on you as a, as a person, right? And I think you have to be a certain type of person to continue that relationship. Mm. So she's very private and very complex in a way that Ethel Smythe wears her heart on her sleeve. She's quite transparent. Carwitham is not. And she's so interesting as a person. I would have loved to meet her. And everybody who remembers her at the end of her life remembers her as being very difficult, very exacting, quite belligerent, because she gave up her everything to promote her husband's music. And nobody really knew she composed at all until after he died. The music she wrote when she was younger and her diary entries and the person who she seems to have been in her 20s is absolutely extraordinary. Her music is gripping, it's, it's compelling, and you sort of go, huh, is this the woman who people are telling me about this? Like, you know, obviously people age, but it seems so incongruous. And I think one of the fascinating things for me as a biographer is working out what happens between this extraordinarily charismatic, high achieving, extrovert young woman, how she ends up the person who people describe to me who knew her in the sort of late 1990s. Mm. And she's, she's a fascinating person. What is she most well known for? My favourite piece of hers, which is getting quite a bit of airtime on Radio 3 at the minute, is her piano concerto. And mm. this is an extraordinary piece of music. It's got everything I think that she does super well. It starts out and you're sort of like, whoa, what, what is this piece of music? This is incredible. It really grabs you. And then the second movement, the slow movement, is really enigmatic but incredibly tender and the whole concerto just sort of I think it acts as a brilliant showcase of what she's capable of mm. compositionally some of her film music's been recorded because she was best known in her lifetime as a film composer that was really what she did which probably con contributes to why she's less known now but some of her film music's been recorded that's very good and also her string quartets. I really like her string quartets. Okay. I'm going to look that up because string quartets, that's sort of up my alley. <laughs> but um, Yeah. But yeah, definitely. I'm going to look up the piano concerto. I just have this image in my head of we're saying that Ethel Smythe was like the Twitter queen and like Rebecca Clark and Dorothy Howe were the uh, Instagram influencers. What's Doreen Carwithin? She's the one where you Google her and are like, this is suspicious. Why are there no records of this person anywhere? <laughs> She's the person who's got social media accounts but doesn't have a profile picture. Exactly. There's just a name. And then she's got like maybe, you know, maybe she's on there as Mary Alwyn as well. And so you're like, what, what is this the Doreen Cumberland? What's going on yeah. here? I mean, how would you know that? Because it's, I mean, like Mary's like her middle name or something, right? You'd see that and you'd be like, what, like, how did you get from... Doreen Carwithin to marry out yeah yeah crazy exactly she'd be the one where you're like oh, okay I'm gonna look up the people in my year at school see what they're doing now and you're like oh, okay what on earth happened with you what's this going on here is this the right profile <laughs> <laughs> or you get an email from her and you think it's spam because you think it's yes, she's a bot exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it will be like quite blunt and to the point maybe like, that's okay. why you think it's a bot because you'll be like oh my gosh <laughs> But I have complete confidence that she showcases her humanity through her music. So that's her preferred channel. I love hearing about that. That is that is awesome. So when is the book coming out? If everything goes according to plan, obviously writing a book in lockdown was not 
what I anticipated doing. That has somewhat changed how I am writing. Um, well, you've got to fit it around the dog walks and everything. <laughs> well, I've got to fit it around what I can and can't get access to. You know, I have oh, yes, the material that I got before lockdown started and now I am heavily reliant on incredible librarians who have been so sweetly like scanning me material um, from all the libraries that I can't visit but that means that my writing schedule is super dependent on how long it takes to scan in like a six seven hundred page diary guess what that takes a long time So exactly. <laughs> That's a fun job for that library and oh my goodness. But um oh, you must feel really grateful that those people exist though. <laughs> uh I yes. I librarians, archivists and research assistants. Thank you all. Oh my goodness. Yeah, they're doing an incredible job. If it all goes to plan, which at the minute I think it should be, we're hoping to have the book out spring 2023. So it's a bit of a wait, but it'll come out eventually. <laughs> Yes, you could say that about about most creative projects these days. It'll come out eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in the in the future. That means in the future. <laughs> it's not a lie, is it? Well, I, I'm looking forward to spring 2023. I'll be. I feel like I'll, I'll be so much older then. <laughs> but it's only two years away. I definitely will be. <laughs> So as you may or may not know, in my podcast, I have a segment called the wild card question round, where you mm-hmm. get to choose what I ask you next based on three topics that I present you. Okay. Okay. So your topics are essential listening, musical memories, and because this is me, eating food, which I've labeled fantasy edition. I mean, I can't say no to that, can I? It's got to be eating food fantasy edition. <laughs> I was definitely thinking, oh, let's do some essential listening. And then you brought out the food. And I'm like, no, I'm there for the food. <laughs> Excellent. I decided to call it the fantasy edition, but fantasy with a PH. Because what is it with British composers always writing fantasies with a PH? It's, 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 mm-hmm. quite, a, it's quite a British thing, isn't it? Before I ask you the question, can you tell me why that is, if you have an answer? So I can refer you to a book <laughs> that talks about this. An entire book. Yeah, well, it's, it's a section of the book, um, but Laura Seddon uh, has written about this and the importance of the fantasy form as a kind of compositional showcase in Britain. So there we go. Oh, okay. Good. Good knowing you. Fantasy. Okay, so eating food, fantasy edition. If we weren't in lockdown, where would you love to eat? Bearing in mind this could be anywhere oh. in the world. I have thought about this so many times over the last couple of weeks. Oh, this is a much harder question than essential listening because. So I really, really, really miss Stockholm. And I think I would probably go and just sit in some coffee shops in Stockholm and have some cinnamon buns. Oh my gosh. Because, oh my God, they are so good. (laughs) And you just can't get them in the UK. Did you live there for a period? I didn't live there, but I went there an awful lot for research um, when I was doing my PhD. So I spent a lot of my PhD sitting in Swedish coffee shops, eating cinnamon buns. And it's it's so good. That sounds like the dream. I love that. It's like, oh, you're here again. Yes, I'm doing my PhD. Bring me more cinnamon buns. (laughs) (laughs) It's very classic. (laughs) Did you thank the cinnamon buns in your acknowledgments? when you published your PhD? I did thank the staff 
at the coffee shop that I most regularly work at down the road because we had some really great research questions. They always know because I'd be sitting there on like my fifth cup of coffee by 11. They'd be like, is it a, is it a tough research day, Lynn? Do you want to talk about it? And I'd be like, yes, please. <laughs> well, there you go. There's that human company that you were craving that you didn't get when you were yep. a solo pianist. <laughs> I love that. Cinnamon buns are a must in the winter, I have to say. Yeah. Does it specifically have to be in Stockholm? Like, would you would you make cinnamon buns yourself at home? I have tried, and I am not yet British Bake Off level on my cinnamon buns. Let's just say, but yeah, I can I can make cinnamon buns at home. But right now, I'm just craving going somewhere that isn't my home because I've seen a lot of my home over the last year. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I would love to just go out to a restaurant or something. And I managed yeah. to in like the nine days we were in tier two or something back in Ooh. December. Like, woohoo, we went out for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully we'll be back. Well, hopefully you'll also get to um, experience the Stockholm cinnamon bun I would experience. settle for like a pizza anywhere in the town. <laughs> just, just, just somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, just somewhere that is not these four walls I, I exactly because you know yeah. we like cooking but we yeah when you have to do it all the time because I'm someone that loves cooking but even I'm yeah. reaching my limits and it's just like I would pay someone else to do this which is the whole premise of going out to eat right <laughs> <laughs> anyway thank you so much for your answer to my eating food fantasy edition and also answering the question about fantasy <laughs> Leah, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for asking me on. Where can people find out more about yourself and your work? Twitter's probably the best place. I'm on Twitter at Leah Broad or my website is leahbroad.wordpress.com. Well, I imagine we'll see more information about your upcoming work. There will be lots of blog posts. Nice, nice. In the future. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. That was my chat with the wonderful Leah Broad. Because our chat featured a lot of music by composers that people, myself included, may not be overly familiar with, I've created a Spotify playlist compiling some recordings of the pieces mentioned, like Doreen Carwithin's Piano Concerto, her string quartets, as well as some pieces that I enjoy, like the Rebecca Clark Viola Sonata. Remember to check out the show notes for the link to that playlist, and you can listen to that once you're done listening to this episode. If you want to find out more about fantasies with a PH, I've chucked a few in the playlist. And in the show notes, you might be interested in the author Leah mentioned earlier, Laura Seddon. Laura Seddon wrote the book British Women Composers and Instrumental Chamber Music in the Early 20th Century, in which there's a chapter called The Early 20th Century Fantasy. So if you don't know what a fantasy is, a fantasy is a short, free-form instrumental work that goes through different styles and tempi. It's kind of amorphous, maybe in a lovely way, like the constant movement of water in a river, or maybe less pleasant, like a sourdough starter that's outgrown its jar and is oozing its way along the kitchen counter. Whatever. As I said, different styles and tempi, and the instrumental voices are treated equally as well. It seems there was an explosion of fantasies written in early 20th century Britain, 
There were even competitions held where the rules stipulated composers write a short piece to be played without a break, but could be divided into sections of varying rhythm and tempi. Which sounds pretty fantastic to me. Sorry. But then some musicians were getting sick of seeing fantasies everywhere. Maybe they yearned for the structure and parameters of sonata form. Maybe they'd worn out the P and H keys on their typewriters. Herbert Howells had written a somewhat paradoxically named Fantasy Sonata for violin and piano in 1917, only to retract the fantasy bit from the name two years later, because he believed, quote, The word has begun to frighten onlookers at British music. Oh. But then he wrote a fantasy for string quartet five years later, so maybe he embraced it and got over his phobia. Anyway, there's plenty to explore by listening and reading, so check out the show notes for the details. And that's it for today. Special thanks to Ros Nagy for my logo and Daniel Elms for my jingle. Massive thanks to Leah Broad for being my guest in this episode, and as always, thank you for listening. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can now donate and buy me a coffee on my coffee page. Link in the show notes. Get in touch at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com or on the website asitcomes.com, where you'll also find all previous episodes and transcripts of the podcast. You can also get in touch with me via Instagram and Facebook, where I highly recommend you give me a follow and a like at asitcomespod. Remember to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to those who have already done so. And thanks for continuing to spread the word. Chat to you soon and take good care. Bye. Thank you.